everybody, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today, we are going to be talking all about disability in opera and in the performing arts. This is a very special issues in opera because I feel like ableism is something that is largely overlooked in the arts. It's largely overlooked in general. And we're going to get into all the meat of that conversation, but first, we have a couple of announcements. First of all, we have a new YouTube video coming out. It is Michelle and I competing to see who can name the most composers in 10 minutes on this list. And uh, the... <laughs> you will be shocked at who wins, and you will be shocked at the margin with which the winner wins. Let's it's just a, say that right off the bat. It's a real nail-biter. And the loser <laughs> had to wear a particular item from our bad music merch episode. So definitely get excited. That is coming out. And we will announce that on our Instagram, so keep an eye out for that. Yes, like this week is just very spicy because on Sunday, January 24th, we are returning with another Jackbox Games game night. And for those of you guys who have joined us or have seen the hype, uh, that's one of our funnest events that we put on each month. And we're excited. We took a break in December because December is hectic, but we are back in 2021 and we're going to going to be partying it up so that will be this sunday january 24th at 5 pacific 8 eastern we play those on our discord it's super easy to join if you're unfamiliar with how to join unfamiliar with jackbox games or unfamiliar with discord in general you can go to the events highlight on our instagram that has a little tutorial to uh, answer all those questions for you and if you need a little help send us a dm we're happy to help but we'll play for around two hours so come and go as you please it's going to be so fun yeah those games are super simple and a lot of fun great so it's going to be a really exciting week we have so many things coming up and we're excited to uh release all this content and play all these games with you guys but let's move now into our episode so you know we're really excited to be returning with another issues in opera centered episode these are tough to tackle but they're very rewarding and we really appreciate the feedback that you guys give us after we publish one of them but we just wanted to include a little disclaimer in case you're new to our Issues in Opera series. So today we're going to be speaking about physical disability in opera and music. Just right off the bat, we highly encourage you to do your own research in an effort to promote inclusivity in our industry. Jesse and I are completely aware that we do not experience any of the barriers that we will be speaking on today. And while we do a ton of research to prepare these episodes, no amount of research on our own end will ever supplement the lived experiences of people with disabilities. We're going to be talking a little bit about how accessibility is something that should be sought out with disabled people, not for them. And so the fact that we're doing this just with us, but with the research and the hard work of a bunch of disabled writers and advocates. And because of that, like we want to give other young artists the chance to use our platform to speak up on these issues, especially the ones that personally affect them. So as with all the previous episodes in our issue in opera series, we do plan to pursue a follow-up interview and continue the dialogue. Yes, Jesse and I feel very privileged to run a platform that allows us to connect with other young artists around the world. And the reason we do these issues in opera episodes is to create a space in which we can discuss the areas of the music industry that demand our attention and require reform. So we just wanted to give that, that little disclaimer because we're going to be speaking on some tough topics and they don't affect us and we want to represent them as well as possible and then also have an interview episode in the works in the future. And then also just side note, today's episode is only going to focus on 
the way that ableism and, you know, certain structures affect physical disabilities, not mental. We'll do a whole other episode on that in the future as well. And then one additional shout out before we get into the bulk is operaanddisability.com is an incredible website and resource and that resource heavily informed this episode and we will be quoting our sources as we move through this but operaanddisability.com is a wonderful wonderful place to start if you're interested in kind of learning about the way that disability works and kind of needs reform in the music world. And that website is the hard work of Charlotte Armstrong, who is a musicologist who specializes in representation and performance of disability in opera. And so we are incredibly grateful for that because it was an invaluable resource. It was the main jumping off point for a lot of what we found. And so the first thing we have to do is define what exactly ableism is. And ableism is the discrimination against those with disabilities or those perceived to have disabilities in favor of able-bodied people. Ableism is a really sneaky type of discrimination because I think a lot of people find ways to justify it in their minds. Yeah, the mental gymnastics that people will go through to promote and continue to use ableism as kind of a weapon is pretty astounding. And it's very interesting because like you said, you know, unless you yourself are disabled or unless you know somebody who has a disability, it's really it can be very sneaky. If you're not listening to it, it's it's a different type of discrimination than, you know, somebody being blatantly racist or misogynistic. Yeah. It presents itself to me in like three main ways, which is like ignorance, just not being cognizant of the fact that it's happening around you. The exclusion, like just not realizing that there are accommodations that have to be made and should be made. And also then like this really well-meaning but a condescending kind of idea that you have to help somebody when the reality of it is uh, a lot of what you should be doing is giving other people autonomy. Not finding ways to help, but finding ways to allow them to live their lives as autonomously as possible. Yeah. So we're definitely having a battle against ableism in the performing arts, really just in the entertainment industry at large. And there are a lot of ways that ableism is so ingrained and integrated in the performing arts. Yeah, I think this is like a huge thing. And I just want to ask you if you, Michelle, can think of a movie that has a main character with a disability where that disability is not the focus of the film. I can't think of a single film. I really tried. I actually looked up a list of films with main characters who have a disability and I really couldn't find one that wasn't about it, about the journey around that. And and that's part of the problem is all of these stories are framed as really either tragic or inspirational. And it's either the story of someone who becomes disabled or someone who's being cured of a disability. It's never usually just people living their lives as they are. Or it's the focus on the burden of a disabled person on able-bodied people. And that's, that's awful. <laughs> Yeah, it is very unfortunate because I think we can think of a lot of also like movies aimed at teens. I don't know why that is like definitely a a thing in the like young teen like type movies, but like it, it's practically a genre itself of like stories about people with disabilities in a very ableist light, which sucks. Yeah, it's kind of like all of those themes, you know, you've seen the men writing women. Yeah. Where it's just a, 
but you know, it talks way too much about boobs and being feminine and thinking about what men think. That's kind of what it's like for disabled people to read the writing of able-bodied people who are not actually being cognizant of what they're writing. The assumption right. that you wake up every day only thinking about a disability. And that is that is completely, you know, an able-bodied perspective. Absolutely. The other thing that you see a lot is just like the very, the like vast simplification of a character into just their disability and once again that journey. One of the things that I think was really interesting this year that I learned was that there's been a lot of strange conversations around Helen Keller, but one of the things I never knew about Helen Keller was that A, she was a huge supporter of the NAACP. She has a bunch of letters she wrote to people in the organization. She contributed financially, but she was a feminist. She was a member of the Socialist Party. She was very cognizant of the fact that she had wealth and the wealth attributed to the fact that she was able to learn to speak and write because she had access to money and access to resources that other people didn't have. And those are all things I never knew. <laughs> all things that are erased from her story when we tell it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Like we forget that there is a whole human being there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's, that's, crazy. that's part of it because... The thing is, for a lot of people, you know, not only, like, does this affect people who are in these shows, in these films, in these plays, it also affects people who grow up watching them, whose perspective may be shaped by them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way that we rewrite the stories of people with disabilities is, um, that's got to stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and in addition to, you know, rewriting those stories from an ableist perspective, I think another huge issue that we see I mean, we have issues in representation across the board, but even when a character is disabled in a movie or a show, it's really, really rare to see an actor with that disability play the character. I mean, it's something like 95% of disabled characters are played by able-bodied actors. Yeah, which is, is fascinating. It's just, it's strange. It's weird. It is very strange. I think there's also, there's a notion about this, and we were talking earlier about justifying things. And there, so recently CBS was criticized for not casting a deaf actor in a TV adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand. There is a deaf character. And their excuse was that there are sequences where the deaf character speaks. Well, there are plenty of deaf people who can speak. And also on top of that, even if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted a different voice on there, you have stunt doubles. You could have someone else do the voiceover. It's not that complicated. You can also film the sequences differently. It's weird that we allow for things like stunt doubles, but we can't imagine a voice double. Yeah, but I mean, a voice double isn't even really necessary. No. Uh, once again, there are plenty either, of deaf people so... who can speak. Yeah. So... It's, it, it's once again that complete lack of knowledge about the thing that you're, you're working on. And especially when you're doing a show with a character in there who is deaf. Anyway. Absolutely. This definitely also plays into body shaming and character archetyping. This idea that like a romantic lead couldn't be disabled in some way or has to look a certain way or you need people's heights to match up a certain way. It's silly. It very much reminds me of the discussion that we had in our Issues in Opera Fat Phobia episode and that like we just need to realize that everybody is the main character of their own life, of their own story. And, you know, to think that people with disabilities don't live largely in many aspects of their lives, regular lives, there's still people who experience the same things that we do just in a different lens. And But like, just because of their disability doesn't mean that they can't be on stage, that they like, because they have a wheelchair, that they can't be on stage and still be a 
person who interacts with the world. Exactly. It, it, once again, it's just that ignorance of like, there are tons of people living their lives every day. These are not, yes. <laughs> there's nothing about it that is unusual. And to pretend that there is, is simply ableist. You just got to go outside more folks. <laughs> You just need to interact with more people. I think part of, like, the thing about classical music is with how old it is, I don't really see people making adaptive instruments in the same way I see with, like, more modern instruments, you know? Uh, I've seen people change controllers to better suit people with certain physical disabilities, but I don't see that same accommodation being made for instrumentalists, which is odd to me because as long as you can play it, does it really matter what the bow is exactly shaped like as long as you're getting the sound you want? And that's one of those weird things where I think tradition ruins things. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, this is where we go through the the, all the gymnastics of trying to battle insurance to try and get these modified instruments and, and resources that do exist. I mean, in a little bit, we'll talk about um, a musician's experience with, you know, the fact that there aren't a lot of hearing aids that are specific for musicians. I mean, it's they're incredibly hard to find. And so that is very, very tough. But yes, there are so many things like it's so hard to find scores for, you know, able-bodied people. Yeah. Like, can you imagine having to find a score that's in Braille? Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, think about how many additions you have. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine the just the cost yeah. that's stacked against you. And, and once again, insurance is rarely ever on your side. You know, the other thing about it is whether it is like a very old venue or even a very new venue that might be smaller, lots and lots of theaters have accessibility issues, both backstage in terms of green rooms, bathrooms, getting on and off the stage, but also in the audience. You know, not everyone has good seating for people who are disabled or doesn't have actual like solid ramps or like safe ways to get through or seats that are wide enough or all these different things that really help people. Railings that are super important. We see a lot of, you know, we're very excited about new opera, but part of the problem with some of those new spaces is that those companies are young and they don't have the funds and they don't, they can't build what they need to build to make it accessible to everyone, which is counterintuitive to what the purpose of doing new music really is. Mm -hmm. And then of course you have the ones that are so old that it's very hard to build into them or like things are so narrow that you simply would have to tear down the whole building to make accommodations. And then you've got to figure out an innovative way to work around that. And that is definitely a huge challenge. Absolutely. But ableism in opera specifically, one of the interesting things that you kind of forget about is that a lot of people will do kind of something similar to what we talked about in our fat phobia interview with Tracy Cox, which we were talking about fat suits. But in opera, you also see people doing what is called cripping up, which is where they take on a physical disability, whether they're using a cane or they add a prosthetic hunchback for something like Rigoletto. But there are tons of opera characters that actually have some form of disability, whether it be mental or physical. And the portrayal of these is often heavily exaggerated in a way that can be insulting. Yeah. I mean, it just becomes a, an archetype, you know, it just everything's blown so out of proportion that it's that it is offensive. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if you really think about opera compared to like musical theater or just dance it's definitely one of the less physically demanding art forms i mean obviously yes you have dance you have movement but it doesn't have to be that way in opera but yet we still don't see a lot of representation of people with disabilities in opera 
And I think that's like part of the way that we tell their stories. I think it's part of the way that, you know, we are always battling this discrimination against like what we believe should be visible on a on a stage. And just I think also people just being lazy and not wanting to accommodate. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, the other thing that's kind of funny is another reason people might think about this is just because a lot of opera is based on, you know, they they said it in a time period. They're period pieces. But people were still disabled back then. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, it's not like you can't find props that'll work. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's not like this is a new thing. Uh, and there's so yeah. many, even if you have a physically demanding role in some way, there are so many innovative ways to work around it. And I think we miss out on the opportunity to do interesting things in opera with representation. Like there there are opportunities that present themselves only with representation. I want to see a Musetta that has a disability. I want to see a Musetta in, oh. a, in a wheelchair. And the men just carry you know, her. That's what I want to see. I would love that. Because I think the other thing is like, you know, in the interest of checking boxes, so to speak, like you could cast a character like Mimi, right? To be disabled, but that would be so cheap because she's already ill. So it would be so powerful to see a character like Musetta, a character of power, right? And a character whose like entire social status is just that of an attractive of role, right? Honestly, that to have that type of representation. Right. We need a queen. But also just like that brings up another important point, which is like when we do see characters in opera who are written as disabled, they are often considered ugly. They are desexualized. They are cast aside. They are outcasts in some way. You you don't see representation of, once again, people just living their lives. (laughs) And most of the stories of disabled characters in opera end in a cure or a death. Once again, not just letting people live. Yep. The one thing that opera does have going for it, though, is we have subtitles. We did it, guys. We do have <laughs> subtitles. We did. That's, we did the bare minimum. <laughs> Musical theater should take on our, our super titles. Just saying. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, there's Why no not? reason not to. And trust me, yeah. there are plenty there of people who no cannot pick up on the words in musical theater. Oh my gosh, imagine... <laughs> This is such a side tangent, but I'll never forget when I first watched Hamilton with my dad and my dad was like practically spasming trying to get all of the words because the rap is so fast in certain areas. And you're like, what did they say? What did they say? I missed it. Who's speaking? And I'm like, oh, my God. Somebody going to get some super titles from my dad. <laughs> but yeah, like that is the one thing that we we really have going for us is our super titles. Yeah. And I mentioned this earlier. Uh, older opera houses have a lot of accessibility issues narrow hallways stairwells that can't be changed no elevators and that's that's just something like those are long-term plans that like basically have to be fixed by the city but opera houses should be prioritizing that like that should be at the forefront of your mind is making your building as accessible as possible nobody should have to worry that they can't get to their seat yeah and a huge thing is that pedagogy is so largely focused around able-bodied performers that it makes it really difficult to find resources for teachers who may have disabled students and and that's atrocious like that's one of those reasons where when we talk about that's part of the reason we don't see more disabled it's like people don't have the resources to teach to accommodate because nobody's studying it because nobody's caring enough yeah no that's true you as know? we mentioned before it's it's definitely harder to get resources they're definitely not readily available by any means 
I think that's one of those things that over the long term we're going to have to basically crowdsource. But there are a lot of reasons why we don't see more disabled opera singers beyond just the, for example, lack of pedagogy. But one of the things I want to do mention as we jump into this, there are plenty of people living with disabilities and chronic illnesses that are not visible. You know, a lot of what we've talked about are very visible ones because those are the ones that people tend to obviously discriminate based on are ones that they think they see or perceive in a, in a person. But there are tons of people living with chronic illness and they often hide them. They don't disclose them and they're not obligated to in order to avoid ableism, in order to avoid losing opportunities because of it. Um, so part of the reason you don't see more disabled opera singers is that a lot of people hide their disabilities in order to avoid discrimination. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, let's dig a little deeper into why we don't see more opera singers with disabilities. And I think as we were looking for young artists that are, you know, more or less our age, you know, having to deal with this, there was an interview with opera singer and wheelchair user Jasmine Gonzalez. And she tells a very interesting story in this interview and that she, you know, was warming up in her apartment and she later has her neighbors approach her and they say, oh my gosh, like we heard this beautiful singing. Like we didn't know that your roommate sang. And, you know, Jasmine has a, is very gracious with them and has a sense of humor and says, oh, well, you know, my roommate actually can't hold a tune to save her life. So um, that's, that's pretty funny. And they were like, oh, well, then it must have been your other roommate. And she's like, well, that would be scary because I don't have another roommate. And her neighbors were just like at a complete loss of like where the heck they heard this beautiful voice. And she was like, why wouldn't you realize that it was me singing? Like, why why are you going through all these steps to find out who's singing when like the singer is right in front of you? And we see a lot of this type of interaction and where we have this assumption that, you know, people with disabilities, uh, mental or physical, that they would just not participate or that it's just impossible that it could be them that has the talent. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's just that assumption. And I think all of us have to remember, like, when you got into music, most of us didn't, like, self-start into music. Usually a parent signs you up for some kind of lessons. Or, you know, your friend joins a choir, and so you join a choir. We're usually invited in. And when the assumption is you're not the kind of person who would be a part of that, some people just never get invited in. I mean, part of the reason she says she got into music was because her mom is a musician. Imagine if she wasn't. Yeah. Another huge reason we don't see more opera singers um, with disabilities in our field is, once again, the cost. <laughs> Jesse, you and I know that there is <laughs> insane costs to being an able-bodied opera singer. It's, it's just insane the amount of money that you have to put up to be, you know, put your foot in the door at this type of career. Once again... I can't even imagine the cost of getting a, a score in Braille. Oh, yeah. But I mean, even think about traveling to auditions, at, because that's the other kind of big thing is like a lot of the process of working in music is not accessible. If you were going to audition for an opera company, you have to travel. You mm -hmm. have to find uh, accessible hotel rooms. You have to see if the place you're actually auditioning in is accessible. If it's in an older city, you may have to find very specific ways to get around the city in order to be able to access the building. It adds more cost and more steps and more time into a career field that's already unwelcoming. And so it's not hard to imagine why people don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. And then the, the lack of adaptability in the actual learning and presentation of music. 
I mean, we talked about it. Imagine how hard it would be to find a score in Braille, the lack of pedagogy. It's simply like, whereas when we talk about some of these, we talk about how people peel off at the upper levels. When it comes to disability, a lot of people aren't even welcomed in to the lower levels where people start learning music and they're excluded for reasons that are stupid. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, once again, you know, something like hearing aids. (laughs) Even for something like having hearing aids that allow you to hear music the way that you need to to be a musician, having a a specifically designed instrument that allows you to play, you know, it's 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 tough. Yeah. Even something as simple as being able to be seated. You know, I've seen choir directors who get upset about people who have to sit during performance because they simply can't stand for that long. And that's silly. Come on, choir directors. Come on, get it together. No, but that's actually that's actually so true. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's that's spot on. Yeah. I've just I remember a couple times in performances where they were so annoyed that there had to be a chair brought on and off stage. I'm like, who cares? Yeah. Nobody cares. <laughs> Literally the simplest um, accommodation that exists. Yeah. Well, it's like the battle is always like it just looks weird to have a chair and it's like are we really going to like sacrifice somebody being comfortable and being part of the choir over aesthetics? I think not or I would hope not. Yeah. We always like to to get into a section of our issues in opera episodes of, you know, asking the question, the ongoing question of what are the ways that we can make opera more inclusive and more of a safe and welcoming space. And I think at the top of this is you know, with all of our other episodes, language matters. And the way that you are writing or speaking about people with disabilities, it's very important, the language that you use. Um, And it's very important to put the person first. So catch-all phrases like the blind, the deaf, or the disabled do not reflect the individuality, the equality, or the dignity of people with disabilities. And I know, like, language changes, language evolves as it should. Um, And if you want to do some further research on on more up-to-date terms and appropriate terms to use, in the show notes, we will have a link to a resource called Appropriate Terms to Use by the National Disability Authority. And this is a great resource because it is very important the way that you use your words and that they describe people with, you know, grace and dignity. Yeah. Another really great way to pick up on better terms and better ways to speak about these issues is to follow creators who are advocating. You'll just learn so much just by having it them in your feed. I think a couple that are really great on Twitter are Haben Girma, Melissa Thompson, and Alice Wong. I followed them on Twitter. I've learned so much this year um, from following them. And so I suggest one of the really great ways to just learn more is to just follow people who are constantly advocating and bringing up these issues because it will really open your eyes to what you're missing. This is really, really important. And I know I like to talk about social media at every chance that I get, and I'm going to take it um, right now. (laughs) But this is really important because we are so dependent and so like one with our phones and social media now as a society and the content that you choose to consume I can't even stress how important that is and it's so important to follow these creators who you know take time to educate you I mean like I just think of of following even just like Blair Imani the way that she talks about gender issues, about race issues, about, you know, ableism and the way that it presents itself and all of this stuff. Like I have learned so much. And so I would just urge you to 
follow the people that Jesse has listed and do your own research because it is really important that you're looking and exploring and learning more about this in your daily lives. Yeah. Thank you for coming to my <laughs> TED Talk. <laughs> but it's like if you're going to scroll on, on, on Instagram for like five hours a day, right? We get those horrendous Apple updates about how much time you're on your phone and Instagram and Twitter. Like you might as well be educating yourself while you're doing it. Yeah. And supporting creators that are disabled and are making bomb ass content. I mean, as as empty headed as I may sound when I say this, uh, I only knew about the issue with the stand that I mentioned earlier because I follow these people because they made me aware of an issue in representation that I was ignorant to that I hadn't even thought about. And so it's just once again, it's a really great way to just start to insert intersectional advocacy into your life. And all of those people are intersectional advocates, too, which makes them even better to follow. The other thing is, if you are in control of an ensemble or an opera company or any kind of platform with an audience and you are looking to be more accessible, the important point is that the move towards accessibility in music making should be sought with and not for disabled people. It's very easy for people to center themselves. I'm sure the people who I talked about earlier who wrote those films with a disabled main character really thought that what they were doing was good and that they were, you know, telling someone's story. But when you look at the writing and you look at it from the perspective it's written from, it can do a lot of harm. Yeah. If you are not a person with disabilities, you really can't ever possibly imagine what is best for them or what would be the most helpful for them. It's just a very big assumption to make that you can can speak on their behalf and that you know what would benefit them best. So it it is true. And I know that a lot of our audience um, were young artists and we're not necessarily in control of an opera company or we don't necessarily have the position where we're calling the shots. But, you know, even just acknowledging that, because I wholeheartedly believe that the people listening to this podcast will be in power, you know, five to 10 years from now. And so it's important to learn this stuff now so that once you're given the privilege to make those big decisions, that you're coming at it from the right angle. Yeah. Yeah. Just be aware of who are you actually centering in your conversation. Yeah, another great further reading is Charles Matthews has a paper called The Social Model of Disability from a Music Technology and ADHD Perspective. Great paper, very insightful, and the main point is, you know, moving towards accessibility and music making should be sought with and not for disabled people. Yeah, it just makes sense. But in speaking about centering people, we want to take some time to talk about some really cool people who have been doing this work, who have done incredible work in the field of classical music as people with disabilities and working for people with disabilities. Yeah. So one of the cool figures that I thought was just so fascinating is Paul Whitaker. Paul Whitaker is a pianist. He's an organist. He works with choirs and uh, he founded Music and the Deaf, which is a charity and organization that aims to enrich the lives of those with hearing loss through the experience of music. He is uh, profoundly deaf, so he has very limited hearing still left. And there's an article on hearingaidsformusic.org where Whitaker talks about his ongoing journey to find hearing aids specifically built for the purpose of listening to music. And he talks in depth about, you know, he, he had a set of hearing aids that were great And then the technology basically became outdated and they kicked the bucket. And when he was basically forced to find a more modern version, none of the newer versions helped him. And he's largely stopped 
listening to music. It was really hard for him to help, you know, run a choir when he couldn't hear what was happening. He talks in depth about his ongoing journey to still find something that was as good as the older technology. And this just brings me to, once again, the point of there's just not as many resources available right now. And I'm hopeful that as technology becomes, you know, more widely available, that there will be more options. But it does, there are holes in, in our music industry in the way that technology intersects with it, in that there are many needs that are just still not being met even if the technology does exist. And see, that's once again that thing about why people need to be working with disabled people instead of for them, is that I'm sure whatever change they made in the technology made something else easier, but at the same time it cut someone off from something that gave them profound joy. And so when you're not actually listening to the people who you make the technology for, and you're not considering the many ways in which one accommodation could ruin something else, this is what you end up with. Yeah. Absolutely. Another cool figure that we found um, is Jenny Wilson Best. Jenny Wilson is a professional soprano whose career as an opera and concert singer spans nearly 40 years. She's a, a huge figure in the UK. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and has been a longtime advocate for singers with disabilities. There is an absolutely lovely interview with her on the By Voice Alone London website, which will also be linked in the show notes. But I just wanted to read a little bit of the back and forth from her interview because she just has, she's just awesome. (laughs) I want to meet her so bad. (laughs) But By Voice Alone asked, tell us someone who has inspired or helped you. And her response was, about five years ago when my MS had rendered me unable to walk or stand for any length of time, I remember talking to Robert Jones, who was a staff producer at Scottish Opera, about having to give up singing after 30 years of being professionally employed. His response was, if you get offered the contracts because you can sing them, then it is my job to make it work on stage for you. And because of him, I am still singing. That is such an excellent example of people stepping up. Because once again, if you can if you can sing or if you can play, then the people around you who are, you know are running these companies or are stage managers, you know we we need the the support of them to make it happen. Yeah, that's the thing is like it should be from that point about who who's best for the role, like who can sing the role, and everything after that is negotiable. Th- this is not specifically a disability story. I was in a show once. I was in Crazy for You, which you've ever seen that show. It's all tap dancing and just dancing the entire time one of our mm-hmm. one of our leads broke their leg oh no and uh, zangler that's the name of the character anyway there's a scene where zangler and bobby have to mirror each other in a dance so they re-choreographed the entire dance to be on crutches they did it and it looked great it was so good everything else is negotiable that. and it was more interesting for it yeah I love it. We love to hear it. Another question she was asked in this interview was, in your experience, what are some of the practical considerations affecting singers working with disabilities that affect mobility, and how can opera companies help? And she says, there's some give and take involved. One has to be aware that one can't always get asked to sing at every show, and all singing, all dancing show is not going to work, so one has to be realistic. That said, there are lots of ways that companies can offer practical support. Access to parking close to rehearsal venues and theaters, for example. Producers who use discretion about finding a way to fit you into their production. I really appreciate when a producer contacts me in advance and quietly and respectfully asks what I can and can't do, and then tries to accommodate that in rehearsals. 
That's a very different experience to hearing, oh, Jenny, I'll do you later being yelled at you in front of everyone during the rehearsal process. Great stage management is most important. I've worked with some amazing stage managers, especially at Scottish Opera, who put chairs at the side of the stage before I go on. They always know where I am and make sure I'm taken care of, all done with discretion and respect. And that's, once again, that is centering that person over yourself. Quiet, discretion, and just doing what you need to do. Yeah, I think it's important as, you know, when you are, you know, helping serve opera singers or instrumentalists with disabilities that you're not letting your own ego and that kind of savior complex to kind of take hold and and be kind of like an ostentatious reason as to why you're helping. You're not there to give yourself a pat on the back. So discretion and respect are huge. You shouldn't be making a whole production out of out of helping that doesn't help. And a lot of it is also flexibility. The thing, you know, she had she has multiple sclerosis. I have a family member with multiple sclerosis. There is a point in between losing your mobility to the level where you're in a wheelchair and being somewhat mobile. And some things are going to have to be negotiable some days. Some days people will be able to sing, but they won't be able to walk the blocking. Mm-hmm. Don't make a song and dance out of it. Just accommodate. Yeah. One other little remark that we'll pull from this interview is they asked, knowing all that you know now, what advice would you give to any singers working with a disability who wanted to make a career for themselves in opera slash music? And she responded, first, don't assume that if your body doesn't fit, that doesn't mean your voice won't. The voice is the most important tool for any successful career. Opera is about using the sense of sound, feeling your way through sound in order to communicate. And that has enormous expressive potential. Second, speak up. Don't be afraid to talk about your disability. Just because you have a disability does not preclude you from singing. It's the job of the producer to make it work for you. Make friends with the stage management team. Well, Um, everyone should be friends with the stage management team. You will need them. (laughs) Facts. Um, But I love that. And I mean, like we talk with all of these forms of discrimination, what counts is your voice. Yeah. And if you can sing, if you can make music, then that should be your ticket in the door. Exactly. Another somewhat well-known figure in this is Thomas Quasthoff, who is a bass baritone. He was born with phocomelia. It's a birth defect caused uh, by certain medications that they didn't understand at the time. Um, So basically, but basically it affects your limbs. He has shortened limbs. So originally he was denied entrance to music school based on his inability to play the piano which is silly. He was coming in as a singer. <laughs> and I just feel like if you physically cannot play a piano, does it really matter? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, I was like, uh, is it good to be able to play a piano as a singer? Yes. I- is it the end-all be-all? Not really. Is it the end-all be-all? I stand here today and tell you. <laughs> I stand here today as someone <laughs> who probably still couldn't but no. <laughs> Jokes on them. I also couldn't play the piano. So he ends up studying privately. He actually began studying voice at the age of 13, initially as a hobby, but he wanted to play seriously and he wanted to go to music college, but because he was unable to play the piano, he was rejected. So he ends up continuing to study privately for years after that. And he said about this, and this is an article from The Guardian from February 2020. He says, at the time, I felt punished for a problem that I was not responsible for. Looking back now, I had to study privately. It was a chance to involve myself much more deeply in music. There would have been many distractions at music college. I had vocal lessons nearly every day. Normally, it's one and a half hours a week. And now I think it was a good thing. But at the time, it was hard for me. I don't think I could do music lessons every single day. (laughs) Oh, no. 
Oh, no. But that's one of those situations where, like, it's insane to me that he didn't get into music college, and yet he kept this rigorous study schedule in order to continue doing music. Um, and then in 1988, his career took off when he won the ARD International Music Competition in Munich and earned praise from Dietrich Fischer Dieskau, which, like, at that point, I would that would be the peak for me. I would have just left the field if I was complimented. By oh, yeah, I'd be like, great, I can retire now. That's it. I've done it. <laughs> I freaking did it. In 1998, he was a soloist for the festival's world premiere of Penderecki's Credo, uh, which won a Grammy for Best Choral Recording. In 2003, he made his staged operatic debut as Don Fernando and Beethoven's Fidelio at the Salzburg Festival. Like, he's done a ton, a ton of work. We love to see it. Yeah, and when he's since retired. I think he retired in, like, 2012. But he said about his musical progress before he retired, he insists that he doesn't want to be portrayed as some kind of struggle against fearsome odds, and he refused to be categorized as disabled. For me, my disability is a fact and not a problem. I'm not living the life of a disabled person. For sure, I have to handle some things differently from other people, but it's not so different from the life of someone who is not disabled. In any case, who is really not disabled? I'm in the lucky position that everyone can see it. But if you're never happy, if you're only concerned about money or success, this, in my opinion, is also a kind of disability. When he was talking about actually singing, he says, every apparent disadvantage is turned to into plus. I am in a good position of not being able to make gestures with my hands, so my voice is the only form of expression I have. This forces a huge concentration on the part of the audience. If you remain still and have only the face and the voice, the audience has to concentrate much more than for those who use gestures. So maybe it is also an opportunity. I love this. Make the audience freaking work for it, King. Yeah, put the audience to work. <laughs> But I, I think there's lazy this reality is like for people who live with a disability, that disability is just a fact of life. It like having blonde or brown hair. Yeah. They just live their lives. And so this is that important thing about not being condescending when you approach these topics. And it's a shame because there is a, a portion of his life where like between music school and actually his career taking off, he was doing other jobs for a long time and studying law and things. And, like, if you've ever... I encourage you to go listen to him sing because there's no reason he should have ever not been on a stage. Mm. I mean, he has an absolutely gorgeous voice and his singing is phenomenal. But, yeah, I think I think listening to how Thomas Quasthoff, like, talks about his disability really opened my eyes while we were doing this research. But another really, really important thing is not just the people behind the scenes, not just the people, you know, your colleagues. It's also the people making new works and telling new stories. So we wanted to really spotlight an opera that's coming out in 2021, right now. So in 2021, we will see the premiere of Grey Eyes' first chamber opera, Created and performed by deaf and disabled artists. This work tells the story of a disabled composer and musician from the 18th century. It is directed by Jenny Seeley with music by composer Erilyn Wallen. And the Paradis Files chronicles the life of Maria Teresa von Paradis, an Austrian composer, pianist, and singer known as the Blind Enchantress. And I am just so freaking excited. This is like when we found the bisexual uh, sword fighting woman. Yes, Julie. The Blind Enchantress hit me up. I'm so excited. Yeah, we're going to try. I think um, for right now, you know, covid you know, in the context of COVID, right now we're expecting this to launch, I think, in September 2021. You better freaking bet we're going to try to get this to be our opera watch party for the month of September. 
but it's just very exciting. It's cool to see this type of work being not only composed, but performed and, and accurately performed. And once again, the, the idea that it is all formed not only like incidentally, but for, by and for people. Yeah. Yes, we're very, very excited for this new opera. Yeah. The Blind, so. Enchant- the blind Enchantress is such, such a sick nickname. Like, what a cool title. Yo, it's so cool. So <laughs> cool. But anyway, but this is like another huge thing that I think we'll hopefully see more of. You know, uh, musical theater has Deaf West, who have not only made productions, but also become a part of other productions like Spring Awakening. And I'd love to see more of that in opera because there is space for everyone in opera. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, so we're looking forward to the Paradiste Files in 2021. Yeah. And speaking of making space for everyone in opera, we here at Opera Offstage have some things to own up to in terms of how accessible is our content. And the answer is, at this moment, not as accessible as we want it to be. So we are placing a challenge on ourselves moving forward to include image descriptions of our content on social media. If you don't know what that is, that is where you put a, a short caption that explains what the photo is of so that people who use text-to-speech, people who are blind, can know what what your photo is. Um, it's very helpful. It's definitely gotten better. Twitter's put it into their social media and made it very easy to add. But we, we haven't been doing it up to this point, and so moving forward, we're going to include those. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah uh, including image descriptions on our content is huge, and it doesn't only apply to people you know, who are blind, you know, people with mental disabilities who sometimes have uh, trouble interpreting either expressions or just what's happening in a photo um, also benefit from this. So it's very important to us that we are truly accessible um, in the content that we put out. I very much look forward to seeing your uh, image descriptions for all of our future Jonas Kaufman edits. (gasps) Oh, goodness. I'm gonna have to. S- <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back and and uh, add some image descriptions of our of our uh, Oscar meme. <laughs> Incredible! Oh gosh! Um, yes, truly, everyone needs to be able to appreciate that Photoshop job. But also, we're investigating transitioning to having published transcriptions of all of our episodes available on our website and hopefully in the show notes. So we're some exploring some different ways that we can do that using AI, but hopefully once we are a little bit of a bigger company and have more funding means, we would love to explore options to have organizations do that, that, you know, give back to you know, people with disabilities. And then another huge thing on our list is um, adding closed captions to our YouTube videos and our TikToks. Yeah. So we definitely have uh, challenges for ourselves and we're bringing this up on the podcast because, you know, we need that. We want to be accountable. We want to be accountable. We want you to be able to hear these steps and check in with us and see that we are either doing all of them or are working towards all of them. I mean, the image descriptions and the closed captions, that's will pretty much be live by the time you hear this episode. But we'll be definitely exploring AI purposes to get our podcast transcribed. It'd be cool. And if you have any organizations or that do transcriptions that you want to send to us, we would love to see them. Yes. But yeah, those are our plans moving forward. And 
we do our best with these episodes, but if you have any corrections you want to give us, any other disabled performers you want to tell us about, or organizations we should be looking into and supporting, please contact us. We love to hear your perspective on these things and what you learned. So please reach out to us. We are at Opera Offstage on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Twitter. You can also reach out to us on our website. It's opera-offstage.com. Thanks for hanging out with us this week, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.